probably the biggest perk of working for the NSA is that you get the Ruby Rogues episodes a week before they air. <laughs> <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by Code Climate. Code Climate's new security monitor alerts you immediately when vulnerabilities are introduced into your Rails app. Sleep better knowing that your data is protected. Try it free at rubyrogues.com slash codeclimate. This episode is sponsored by SendGrid, the leader in transactional email and email deliverability. SendGrid helps eliminate the cost and complexity of owning and maintaining your own email infrastructure by handling ISP monitoring, DKIM, SPF, feedback loops, white labeling, link customization, and more. If you'd rather focus on your business than on scaling your email infrastructure, then visit www.sendgrid.com. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 126 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Josh Susser. I will not be making any jokes today. James Edward Gray. Due to the government shutdown, we're all doing this podcast without a paycheck. Katrina Owen. I don't make jokes anywhere or any time. David Brady. I just have to get this last piece of code to compile and go. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Just want to remind you to go check out my uh, freelancing video at goingroguevideo.com. And we also have a special guest, and that is... Sam Livingston Gray. Hello from sunny Portland, Oregon. Since you haven't been on the show before, do you want to introduce yourself, Sam? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm just this geek, you know. Um, Let's see, I've been writing code, I don't want to say professionally, but let's say I've been writing code for money for about 15 years and professionally for somewhat less than that. Yeah, I've been doing Ruby for seven or eight years now and I work at Living Social. So you were that guy at the back of the truck going, hey, buddy, you need some algorithms? Yeah, totally. No, I I am absolutely deeply ashamed of some of the code I wrote in my first few years as a programmer. (laughs) We all are. I think think all artists feel that way about their early work. (laughs) I hope that means I'm learning. (laughs) That's what we hope it means, right? Learning shame. Yeah, I guess if you don't know enough to be ashamed of your early work, then... You're not learning anything. Okay. So. Pretty sure I'm deeply ashamed of some code I wrote yesterday. But, you know. <laughs> I thought we let's, weren't going to talk about there. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, we asked you on to talk about remote pairing. Yeah. Yeah, I've been doing uh, a fair bit of that. Uh, I've been working for Living Social for about 18 months. And uh, pretty much in that time, I, I've been in the office about 30 total days. Um, maybe five of those in the past year. And uh, I work from home with a bunch of people all over the place, and I pair at least half of the time and works pretty well. So I guess that makes me an expert. That's kind of cool, actually. Yeah. So um, there's a lot to talk about. What should we start with? Probably a definition. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you, James. You you literally took the words right out of my mouth. Like you reached into my mouth with and, yeah. No. You just interrupted me because like... Josh was about to be voluntold. <laughs> remote pairing is like uh, where you paste pictures of uh, the sock that you only have one of on the website and then someone else helps you find a match right nice <laughs> I think you, you you post your menu and then somebody else tells you what what wine goes with it oh, or beer you can do beer, beer pairings now mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So, so Sam, help. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you post an apple, and somebody else peels it, and... So, yeah, um, so there's pair programming, right, which is two or possibly more developers who are working together on the same bit of code. And uh, then there's the remote angle on top of that, which is where those two developers are not, like, bumping elbows with each other and staring at the same screen. Um, and I use that definition deliberately because... Uh, I, after doing a lot of remote pairing with people who were in different cities or different time zones, I found myself uh, using the same tools to pair with people in the same room. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. So give us the the breakdown. There's there's kind of different schools of thought in how to do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, the way I think about it. There's basically th- there's a whole lot of tools for doing remote pairing, but. Uh, they they fall into several different categories. You know, obviously you have to have voice connection, and ideally it's nice to have video on top of that. Um, but then as far as actually sharing your coding environment, there's there's three main categories of things. There's the like uh, screen sharing stuff where you basically share either a screen or a particular window, and there's an app that basically looks at all the p- pixels and pushes them across the network for you. There's terminal sharing environments like. GNU screen has been around for a while and Tmux has come up in the past couple of years and that is pretty much what I use. And then there's this weird third category of like cloud-based tools that do some sort of cleverness around scraping the contents of a local buffer and putting them up somewhere that other people can look at them. And there's some interesting work there, uh, but it's not a category of tools that I've used very much. What's an example of that? I don't even know this. Uh, there's one called like Cloud9 IDE. Uh, it's specifically oh, yeah. granted around like JavaScript, and I think it does a couple other languages as well. Of course, we can't use that at Living Social because our security team would go bananas. Right. That's like Flubits. You familiar with that? Uh, I've heard of it, and I know uh, somebody that I worked with has used it, but I haven't tried it out yet. Yeah, and the only reason I haven't used it is because yeah, they have to have access to all of your code and your repo and all that. So, but but there's also um, similar kinds of approaches where. Uh, like uh, using a Google document for being able to share. Like it's probably not good for pair coding, but for other sorts of pairing processes, remote pairing, you can use a Google document of you know which is going to be shared, and you can get live updates. That's kind of that's kind of an interesting point, right? We always think of pairing as a you know kind of uh, coding, but the truth is sometimes we do pair on other things. Like I know I've personally just sat there with somebody f- before playing an omni-graffle, trying to get our head around some kind oh, of structure nice. or something. Right? Sure. Yeah, and, and Google has a, um, a you know shared drawing tool now, so you can, you can do that Ooh, kind of thing. Maybe we could bring back Google Wave. <laughs> <laughs> I loved Wave. That was great. You were the only one. Yeah. <laughs> well, in my three friends. It has friends. the version built right in, right? Yeah. So, okay, right. so... My tool of choice these days is Screen Hero. Have you guys been using that, or you folks been using that? So funny story. I uh, I was using Screen Hero with um, Joe Cutner. He, he wrote the healthy sure. programmer. Um, and uh, so I tried to share my my browser, and I was using Chrome Canary, which is their um, experimental version, and it totally crashed. But it it did work with some of the other windows I shared, and I know that it's still in beta, so it's not perfect. But some of the things that it does, it it does work pretty well for some of that stuff. 
it you know it's a pretty good model it you know yes they're they're going through some growing pains uh and you know with the with stability and all that but it's it it's on, the trend is getting better so it's i think it's a pretty cool idea yeah and it works yeah. it works well enough enough of the time to to be something that it's useful to know about so let's say Let's talk about it just a little bit. The idea, so if you use something like Skype, right? Skype can almost be viewed as like the simplest thing that met Sam's definition of the tools you need and that we all have this voice connection right now. One of, uh, actually we can't on this many call unless we have a pro account, but but, uh, if it's just two of you, then you could share your screen uh, and the person could see what you're doing. Uh, but there's not really any interaction beyond that. And then if you wanted to share the other person's screen, then you would have to stop screen sharing and the other person would start screen sharing, right? So it's kind of this annoyance if you want to flip, you know, kind of thing. Uh, as I recall, uh, Skype is screen sharing, but it's not keyboard and mouse sharing. So right. the person on the other right. end just gets to watch. Yeah, That's I, right. They, they I, I ch- iChat or or messages, um, I guess, does screen sharing where you can actually uh, interact with the remote machine. That's right. So mm-hmm. then that person has full control, but that can be kind of annoying because you kind of have to agree on who's typing right now or who's running the mouse right. Right. Now, so right? so sc- so Screen Hero is like the iChat way of doing things, where where both where the remote person can have access to the machine. But the cool thing about Screen Hero is that you can see both of the cursors, and you can, you know, the other person's cursor has a label on it with their initials. Yeah, that feature is really awesome, up until the point where the label obscures the thing you're typing on. Well, there's that. <laughs> I did, yeah, there has to be, like, some, some key thing that makes their their cursor go completely invisible, because I was always telling my pair, can you move your cursor? I can't read the word underneath it. <laughs> right. yeah, the- but we've totally derailed... Uh, James, he was talking yeah. about something important, yeah. I'm sure. Oh, no, 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 no. No, I was actually just trying to give a lay of the land, right? These are all the different kinds mm-hmm. uh, kinds of uh, screen sharing. Now, with Screen Hero, you do not have voice. You have to use something else for that, right? They've added that. Ah, you have ah, voice okay. and chat. And the other thing is, is that with the screen sharing, say, on Skype, you share the entire screen. And with uh, Screen Hero, you can share individual windows. So you can be working with somebody in one window and gossiping about them in another, and they wouldn't know. <laughs> right, but really it's better just to use multiple screens I for that. I think, Chuck, most of us would have described that as, so you can save some bandwidth by not sharing the whole thing. But yeah, that's what I meant. But your use case is intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> save bandwidth? That. I've got a use for that. Yes. We, we, call that the, we call that the snide band. There you go. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> but now, speaking of bandwidth, that's actually that's a, a wonderful lead-in to one of my rants about why I use the tools that I do, which is that I am really high maintenance when it comes to lag, uh, and the, I love screen sharing because it's the most versatile thing there is. Right, if you can put it on a screen and pretty much everything you can, then you can share it with the person that you're pairing with, and it's almost like being there. Right. But the trade-off of that is that there's a lot of pixels on your screen, and each one of those is a, an RGB value, and that just turns into a lot of bytes to push across the network. Um, and so I don't mind sharing my screen with other people, but when I'm on the, on the receiving end, if there's any kind of perceptible lag between when I type something and it shows up on the screen, I'm just done. 
Yep. Um, I'm really impatient about that sort of thing. Like, I tried using Eclipse years ago, and the actual visible lag between when I typed something and when the code show up on, showed up on the screen was like, oh, I'm done here. So, uh, yeah, so the alternative to that is using a terminal-based or SSH-based uh, environment, which obviously limits your options, but gives you a lot more responsive interface. Well, right. since you should be using Emacs anyway, it's not as painful as you would think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. So actually, yeah. that's a great point because I've always been kind of partial to the screen sharing side. So I'll try to give the other side of the argument. And my reason is I am super picky about my environment and wanting it to be the way I want it to be. And so when you do these terminal sharings and stuff, I think it's harder to get that the same, right? Because you're, you're, you're either doing it on someone's computer or on some third party. So one person will not have their environment guaranteed or both mm-hmm. won't. That's uh, true with all pair programming as far as I can tell. Like, yeah, that, I, I, yes, I see what you mean. That, that leads to a good question. How easy is it to flip in Screen Hero to go to the other person's screen? You is it disconnect easy? and reconnect. So it's about disconnect and reconnect. So that's maybe about the same hassle as Skype or maybe more, right? It, it only takes a few moments. And given that Screen Hero is a little flaky these days, you have to disconnect and reconnect pretty often anyway. So it's, it wouldn't be a big deal. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we call that damning with faint praise. (laughs) Um, Okay, so explain the terminal thing to us, Sam. How do we do that? Well, uh, it's actually pretty much the same thing, right? You have to have one person host or use some third party, uh, some third party server. But the difference is that instead of sharing an entire screen, you just have Tmux or screen, which is designed to manage multiple terminals for you, and then take the input and output from different clients and uh, basically make sure everybody sees the same thing all the time. So I launch Tmux on my machine, I have somebody else SSH in and attach to the same Tmux session, and then from that point on, we're all looking at the same thing. I've seen a lot of people talking fairly recently about setting up a dedicated remote pairing server. And I, like, I've seen people having discussions on the parlay list about that and mm-hmm. in tweets and various other places. So it sounds like it's becoming a thing, and it's a thing that I'm not too familiar with. I'm wondering if you are. Only somewhat. Uh, I typically share a Tmux session on either my machine or the laptop of somebody else that I'm working on. And that's because we're often, I mean, I, I mostly do my remote pairing in the context of my day job. And the apps that we're working on, sometimes they're fiendishly complicated to set up, or you have to run four or five of them at the same time to get what you're doing done. And so it's just easier to not have to like lose half a day to set up your pairing server for that. But I have... I gave a talk on remote pairing at a conference in June, and I actually just set up a, an EC2 node and had people SSH into it. Um, and I did have, like, I think 16 or 17 people in the same Tmux session. So that was fun. Yeah. We didn't I was going to say, you're brave. Yeah. Well, it was I, a disposable node, right? I threw it away when I was done. Mm-hmm. Chuck and I but, did this at a, at a recent client where um, we had an insanely complicated setup and we actually reversed the, the our thinking on the economy of of setup 
we basically burned the three or four days to set up Chef and Puppet so that you could stand up an yes. EC2 box, set up all of the workers, all the backgrounds, all of the, like, Apollo MQ, and, and, and set up the entire engine for everything. And then uh, we had, like, five machines that you could, you know, all of us had the Amazon keys to start and stop them. And we would we would log in. We would run the hitch gem to pair ourselves together on that machine for our commits, and then we would go there. It, it also helped that everybody on that team was new to Emacs and to Vim. They'd come from .NET. And so uh, I was able to say, well, I have a really good Emacs config, so let's just all use that. Um, yes. So yes. those were two... I got around two of the tricky points of that, basically. You just right. brought and- up a really good point, I think, that we should talk about. Like Vim Emacs, right? That, that comes into play when you're doing this. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I so I don't use either Vim or Emacs in my daily life, mm-hmm. but when I remote pair with someone, I much prefer to pair with people who use Emacs than Vim. Why? It, wow. Because because when I use the arrow keys to try and navigate in Vim, it says, "Don't hit that key, hit J." <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, and, I must have and, that and, disabled. And any editor <clears throat> that knows that I want to move my cursor, I guess down or up whatever J is, um, it knows that I want to do that and can tell me that that's the key I should be pushing, but it doesn't do it for me, is dead, is dead to me. That's like um, Python when you type exit in the Python console, right? It says, don't type exit, type quit. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks for nothing, Python. <laughs> no, really, any, any experienced Vim user will tell you, Josh, that what you really need to do is install the hardware extension that just gives you a minor electric shock every time you t- even look at the arrow keys. <laughs> yep. Yep. Emacs has the same thing, but it's a timer. If you have not pushed down Control-Alt or Shift in the last 30 seconds, you get a shock. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, a, this is an interesting point. Sam and I paired when we were at Aloha RubyConf on this cool problem he was playing around with. And, and um, one of the things he asked me right off the bat was... Is it easy for me to get your Emacs config? And I thought about it for like half a second. And I thought, no, it's a freaking nightmare. Mm-hmm. And, and I said <laughs> no, and we didn't do that. I just used Vim with him. But I want to say that he did inspire me to. I rebuilt my Emacs mm-hmm. config over the summer, and now I have it where you, it is actually super easy to get my yep. Emacs config. You can. Pull it down, symlink one directory, and when you launch Emacs the first time, it will set up everything exactly yep. the way I like it. Oh, that's so. great. Yeah, that was one of the things that... Um, so we have this toolkit at Living Social. It's uh, LS Pair. And that, by the way, is linked from uh, Avdi's pair program with .me uh, site, which is wonderful. But one of the things that we tried to solve with LS Pair was uh, this problem of not knowing everybody else's editor c- config. So we just set up a sort of simple curated set of Vim plugins with a standard key binding uh, set of key bindings for both Vim and for Tmux. And we actually... uh, Sam, I'm curious how bad the fighting was over that. I did not get involved. Uh, I said, I don't really know Vim all that well, so why don't you two people who care really deeply about this go and work it out? And they did. It was amazing. Because there was a standard key binding that got used at Pivotal Labs for uh, RubyMine. Cool. And I have never seen any fight as big or intense or as passionate as the fights that, that people had over that key binding set. Well, that reminds me the- of a... Go ahead. 
Sorry, what was the like? What was the key binding for? I don't care what it was technically, but what was it meant to do? It, so it was because you know everybody pair programmed on you know just random machines all the all the time. All the machines had to be set up similarly so that anyone could sit down at any machine and be effective working there. So everybody had a, a similar set of tools that they used on all, on all the machines, and there was definitely variation. It wasn't like you know, you must do it this way or we will fire you. But, you know, it was it was a way to reduce friction when you were pairing with someone you haven't paired with before. And there were key bindings for things like move the, you know, move this, move the current line up one line or indent this block of text or, you know, just all the, or, uh, you know, insert a uh, method definition snippet. Just the standard kind of editor type things you do yeah. when you're when you're writing code and there were, and there were people who preferred the VMAX, the, or the Emacs style bindings or the Vim bindings or the, it, like the big one was like, what does the end key do or the home key do? Because windows users like that to mean the beginning or end of a line and Mac users are like, Oh, it's the beginning or end of the buffer. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and like, I remember, you know, in a meeting saying, why are you turning standard Mac commands into something that Mac users aren't familiar with? <laughs> It's like mm-hmm. crazy crap like that. Like, <laughs> so, uh, so, 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 Sam, you know, if you guys were able to come up with a common conventional set of of uh, key bindings or editor commands or configs that everyone in your organization is using, and nobody got a black eye over it, I think that's a pretty amazing thing. Well, I don't want to overstate it. It's not that everybody <laughs> in the organization is using it. In fact. I think probably most of us still don't pair on a regular basis, but those who want to use LS pair, for those people, it comes with a default Vim config. Uh, it also comes with a feature where if you already have a VimRC, we won't blow it away. And we have, somebody wrote a little script that will actually toggle between the one from LS pair and whatever you already had. So that was pretty sweet nice. too. I think it's so a good what? empathy test. Um, okay. yeah. so, sorry, let me let me let me finish one thought. Are, are you are you on the same thought, James? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I was I was just going to say that um, uh, I'm being unfair when I say that I was the Emacs user at this contract because Chris Meadows was also working there and he was also a pretty good Emacs user and so we had to do that. We had to sit down and decide how much of whose config. And we did two things. One is we were very respectful of each other and said, "Oh, why do? You, oh, I like that." And we, we ended up like stealing stuff from each other back and forth. The other thing we did is we came up with like you can go to GitHub D Brady Emacs libs and download that, and boom, your Emacs is now configured in the same way that everybody else's on the team was. But the third thing that we did is we went to everyone on the team and said, "If you want to change Emacs libs." Go ahead. Just make sure you tell. Don't turn anything off without telling anybody. But you can add anything that you want. And there were a few things that I used that only I used. And so I made sure that they were slipped into most of the machines I worked on, but they weren't actually in the repo because they were just stuff that I wanted. And so the reason I bring this up is that the environment. It, I guess I'm, I guess what I'm saying is is pair devopsing is where pair programming you know has to happen before pair programming can happen. Part of the reason that we put together this LS pair toolkit is because it's been my experience and, you know, I'm, I'm sad that Avdi is not with us because he's done a lot more pairing with a lot more people than I have. But it was my experience that every time I paired with a new person, you would lose an hour or two. I can't SSH to your machine and wait, what was your <laughs> leader key again and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So we're just like, let's just get it. Can we get it to the point where I can be pairing with a new person within five or ten minutes? Right. Mm-hmm. Our, our biggest the same fight in thirty seconds. Yeah. So, so, so 
if I may, I would like to uh, reorient the conversation a little bit. Yeah, uh, hang on. Let's, so, you want to talk let's about stay tools here. for hours? One sec. One sec. Yeah. I got one okay. other question. Okay, yeah. So, so, finish, so finish that thought, and then I want to try reorientation. Okay. So what are we saying here? Are we saying, like, like for example, I am an Emacs user, and I have a very horribly complicated Emacs config, and that I've worked on over years and stuff. So are, are we saying that when two people pair, one person should win? Are we saying it's better to go to a lowest common denominator, like um, that we should have this, you know, kind of minimal config that we can all agree on? No. Uh, are we saying there's a lot of value in just trying it the other person's way for a little while so you can experience new things? What are we saying here? So I think all of those things are true, but for me, having LS pair just have a default that you could revert to is kind of like the convention over configuration. So I, I want to jump in on this just to, just for a second because um, I'm going to give you the same answer I give my clients. It depends. Um, yeah, classic. You you must here. be a developer. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, I said something show. very developery, didn't I? Anyway, um, so. What I found is that if I'm, let's say I'm pairing with James, there are a lot of reasons that I could be pairing with James. I mean, I could be wanting to learn a lot of Ruby awesomeness from him, in which case, you know, I may think that that, I would be better served by just having him work in the environment he's most comfortable in. And then if there's something there that I don't understand that he did, I can ask questions about. If I'm pairing with him specifically to learn about his Emacs setup or whatever, then obviously I want to be using his setup unless I want him to help me with mine, in in which case I'd use mine. So I think it really depends on what you want to get out of it. And uh, you can discuss it beforehand and, and just say, hey, look, you know, this is what I want to learn from you. This is what, you know, what do you hope to learn from me? And then from there, you can kind of figure out which which direction you want to go. And maybe you wind up switching halfway through. I mean, who knows, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. And, and you so, find things from other people that you didn't know about. And so right. it's it's not a lowest common denominator. It's it's like a greatest common factor. I don't know. I would yeah, that's say the that, of pairing but, with people is, wait, what did you just do? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I would so, say that, like, if you are a super van person or a super Emacs person or whatever, take the time to be not, it doesn't have to be, you know, amazing in the other one, but at least learn it. Like, at least be fluent, yeah. Yeah, to the point where if somebody fires it up, you don't have an absolute convict, conniption fit, you know. Mm-hmm. And Peep Code had this really good blog article. I'll see if I can find a link to um, in our show notes. But it was about how you really need to learn, like, these six things to get started with an editor. And it almost seemed like they were kind of arbitrary things that they picked, you know. I mean, like, they are genuinely useful and stuff. But it, it was kind of this neat idea of, at least go this far, right? And and know that much. So that, like, you know, when I did find myself pairing with Sam and he's like, can I get your Emacs config? And I thought, uh, no way. Then I, we used them, you know, and I knew enough of them. You know, I'm sure he laughed at me sometimes when I did things in a horribly inefficient way. But Are you kidding? I was such a fanboy. I was like, I get to pair with James Edward Gray. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it in Ed. I don't care. I'm so making that into a soundbite. <laughs> Ringtone. <laughs> okay, Josh. Now it's your turn. Reorient. Yeah. Okay. So we've been talking about tools for I don't know half hour here almost, <laughs> and I'm reminded of Amy Hoy has said this on on 
many occasions when she'll come up with a cheat sheet or an infographic or something and someone will be like oh my god that's an amazing infographic or that's an amazing cheat sheet what tool did you use to build that and she'll look at them and say it's i used my brain (laughs) that's a good (laughs) tool (laughs) yeah and 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 her point is that you know she has a lot of skills that she's developed for how to communicate information in a really dense readable way and the tool that she uses is just incidental to how she... So, you know, when I'm programming, the editor that I'm using is, to a large extent, just incidental. And I think it's the same thing with pair programming. We've talked a lot about tools here. Those tools are all enablers, but they're not about actually doing the pairing. And Yes, thank you, Josh. So, so Sam, I would love to shift the conversation here and talk about the stuff that's not about tools. Yes. And, you know, there's stuff that's going to be common to just pairing in general, but then there's stuff that's different when you're remote. And I'll, I'll, I'll like throw one thing out to get started. And that's something that, that I learned doing a lot of pairing when I was at Pivotal, especially when we had a lot of remote people was it's really helpful if you can meet in person and work together for at least a week to establish a rapport, learn some trust, figure out your communication patterns. What are the subtle cues that you use to swap back and forth and then once you've established that rapport, then remote pairing is a heck of a lot easier. Definitely. But if you can't, sometimes you you can work it out the other way. Yeah, I mean, it's kind oh. of a new trend we're seeing, right? With Abdi's pair with me stuff, he's really pushing, you know, just jump in there and try it. And I've seen so many tweets of people going, hey, I suddenly find myself wanting to figure out X hashtag pair with me, you know? And it's mm-hmm. like... What an awesome concept. You're going to try something new. Be great to have a little help. You know, can we try this? Okay, so well, I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying if you're going to be working on a, on a project with somebody for two, three, four months, some, you know, sometimes longer, it's really useful to uh, accelerate how quickly you can get up to speed with that person and how effective you can be pairing by getting, you know, th- th- nothing really beats in-person face-to-face interaction for, high, for bandwidth. Right, yeah, because when, the, the embarrassing fact is that we're all still primates, right? We're all still made of meat, and that meat has conventions, and our brains are really good at picking up all that sort of like, out, all of that communication that's outside of the verbal channel, and when you're remote, it's harder to replace that. Yeah, totally. Now, on that team that I, that David was talking about, where they did all the setup, I did go out to Chattanooga, and I met some of the guys on that team, but a lot of them weren't there when I was there, and you can work it out with people who you haven't met in person, but uh, I have to say the thing that made that a whole lot easier was the fact that we did have those common conventions that we had been talking about. So we, we already had the pairing setup set up. Everything was ready to go. Um, the team already had a lot of those conventions that you're talking about for communication, do this this way, you know, that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, so, so, uh, Joe, is there other stuff that you think about in terms of, of pe- the people side of things? Who's Joe? I'm oh. sorry. Sorry. <laughs> you know, my brain just said, oh, I'm, t- I'm saying something about people interactions, so I'm going to use the word Joe because jo- uh, Joe O'Brien talks about right, nice. so Joe, Joe O'Brien yeah. is the metasyntactic syntactic variable for talking about people interactions. <laughs> yes. All right. From now on, I'm using foobar yak Joe. Yes. <laughs> Okay. I thought it was Joe because Joe Kuttner is writing the book on pair programming. 
Nice. Another one. Um, yeah, no, that, Sam, that leads into, yeah. yeah, no, that leads into an interesting, an interesting development over the past year or so, which is that, you know, when I first started doing remote pairing, I was pairing with somebody that I had come to Living Social with uh, from a previous position. And uh, we both came over together. We both already worked really well together. And so for us, it was like, yeah, we're good with, you know, Tmux and uh, voice connection, and that's all we really need. Um, and then somebody discovered that we had a bunch of iPads laying around. Uh, this is apparently what happens when you work for a funded startup. And said, hey, why don't we give these to the developers and uh, see what they can do with them? And I was like, hey, free iPad, I'll take that, I'll try it. But I was I was really surprised to find that having that extra layer of video communication on top of pairing um, and also like having it on a separate screen that I couldn't cover up with under wi- other windows, uh, it really made a huge difference in making it feel more like I had a magic window into somebody else's room and we were just sort of sitting there and it was much more natural to like stop and take my hands off the keyboard and turn, you know, swivel to face the iPad. Uh, it really, it really made a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Telepresence like that can be very cool. The, were you just using FaceTime on the iPad? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah so the, one. Yeah. At, at Pivotal, they actually had a robot that would roll around. That was basically, you know, like an iPad mounted on top of a of a That's wheelie awesome. thing. A, it, was, it, was like a, it was like it was like an iPad on a Segway. Basically, yeah, I've seen those. They're great. They're yeah. ridiculously expensive, but that would be yeah. really cool. Yeah, I think Pivotal was testing one out for um, some garage shop, and That's uh, it, nice. You can do that on a budget. The shop that Chuck and I worked on had a library AV cart with a cheap laptop on it running Skype. And mm-hmm. that was the robot. And if you wanted to move the robot, you had to say, hey, guys, can you move the robot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had... But, but it worked. Yeah, on one of my uh, previous teams, we had somebody who uh, moved away for a year and then eventually came back. And when he was away, we basically set up a laptop and a TV on the wall and a good mic and a webcam. And when you wanted to go and talk to Ravi, you just walked over to Ravi Town. Mm-hmm. So one yeah. of the things that some someone, and I cannot remember if it was you, Sam, or perhaps Avdi, was telling me that they mount the iPad to one side of their computer and their pair mounts it to the other side of their computer so that it, it was who? It was me. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah David was talking about tell, that like two years ago. Yeah. Tell tell us about that. So this is a this is a subtle brain brain hack. So I have two monitors and they're on swivels. And so I can actually turn my telepresence monitor 90 degrees and my partner does the same thing. They do it from the other side. I learned in fairness, I learned this trick from Jim Wyrick. And this creates telepresence where you get the illusion of being side by side because in order to turn and look at my pair partner, I have to turn my head and what I'm looking at is, I'm look, when I turn my head to my left, I'm looking through a camera that is, you know, off to Sean's right. And it's, it's now looking at, and so it feels like you're actually side by side. And it's very natural to turn your head to look to your partner and, t- and talk to something. And then you turn back to the code. And I was going to point that out for Sam with you with the, the iPad off to the side. Having it off to the side is actually almost as much uh, of, a, of a hack like like a, a good brain life hack as having a separate telepresence machine is yes yeah you know i 
I like having it off to the side for a couple of reasons. And one is that my my pair partner, if they're if they want to look over and see what I'm doing, they can tell whether I'm looking at them or whether I'm looking at the code. Yeah, um, and that's a nice signal. But I, and I, I should probably try your setup out before I dismiss it out of hand. But it sounds to me like that seems like a really good way of replicating one of the worst aspects of physical pair partner. Uh, pair programming which is yeah. that you have to like turn your head to look at somebody and talk to them <laughs> yeah, really unless like you're using right over there yeah sam unless yeah. you're using a tete-a-tete uh setup like i pioneered yes yes i stumbled across that accidentally after um hey, what? Uh, aloha rubyconf what's a tete-a-tete setup well, well you know they have like little tete-a-tete uh couches where it's two seats basically fa- uh face-to-face tete-a-tete means face-to-face in french or head-to-head okay. And so, yeah, it's a way that you can have both people facing ah, okay. a so monitor and, yeah, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to the okay. picture of it. But, okay. but uh, yeah, so, like, I, I programmed that way for, a, for like, a year or two yeah. when I was a little. I've relaxed the 90-degree thing. Um, like, my monitor is permanently canted at about 30 degrees now, and it's enough that I have to turn and look, and they can see that I'm turning and looking, but it's also close enough to flat that if I'm not pairing, I don't feel like I have to push my monitor back to feel yeah. like I'm in my own Yeah, that's uh, about space. where my iPad is. Yeah. Slightly different uh, direction here. Uh, another thing that is that is also something I wouldn't want to try and replicate remote pairing uh, that's a, I think is a big advantage is just the, the kind of personal space and, and uh, not to get too detailed, hygiene issues that you often run into when pairing in person uh, are not really an issue at all when you're doing remote pairing. There is, a, there is a cognate, though. The office behind my camera is very cluttered and messy, and I'm actually very self-conscious about it. So am I, which is why I'm working in my basement, carefully constructed a facade of mm-hmm. some bookshelves that are right behind me, and they have like some books and some toys on them. Uh, yeah. And if I turn the camera just a little bit to the side, you can see the concrete wall of my basement. Yeah. But it, I got the sight lines just right so that that's what you see behind me now. There, there's a filing cabinet behind me, and I had a client meeting with their vice president and COO, and I dropped uh, an eight-foot-long whiteboard into the drawer, top drawer of the whiteboard, so that it looked like I was I it looked like I was in an office. Like there's a whiteboard behind me, <laughs> nice. you can't see anything else. I I really appreciate like when I'm in my own space. Like I'm happiest when I'm programming in my own space, you know. And so yeah. I really, you know, regardless of what the other person sees on the camera, at least I feel great because I'm in my office. That makes me very happy and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, and that that goes back to to. Like when I first started doing this, I I thought about things in terms of these are tools for doing remote pair programming, but really I I found myself using them pairing with somebody like sitting in a coffee shop face to face on a two top, you know, with our laptops back to back. I call that the like you sunk my battleship pairing configuration. The nice thing about that is uh, you know you can look down at the code and you look up and there's your eye contact right there. Um, and then I've, I also, uh, I mostly work from home as I think I mentioned, but I, I host coworkers once or twice a week. Um, and so I can be pairing with somebody who's sitting on the couch and I'm sitting in my, you know, comfy dad chair and we're able to share a screen and talk and we don't have to scrunch together and look at the same screen and try to find an angle where like the lighting won't give me a headache in an hour or so. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a nice thing just to have a bunch of different options at your disposal, I guess.
Yeah, we, we've kind of been done with tools. But, uh, I, I've used teleport before, which lets you move your mouse and cursor off to somebody else's screen. And so side-by-side pairing where I sit down next to somebody and then we hook up teleport so that I can drag my mouse over to take control works really well for side-by-side. And then we work on their machine, but I've got my laptop. And then if I need to, and, and this is probably bad pairing, and this is why I wanted to bring this up, um, because this gets into the key problem with remote pairing, right, is distraction and yes. you know losing losing your pair. And sometimes if I've got my laptop off to the side and I'm having a really bad ADD day, instead of going and looking up the the documentation for the thing that they're trying to figure out how to type, I end up looking up that documentation and then going to Twitter and then going to YouTube and, you know, that sort of thing. And at one, at one client, I recognized in myself that it was so bad going in that I didn't even take my laptop. I just took a keyboard and I plugged it into their computer uh, to do that. How do you deal with attention in a, in a remote pairing? Because it's exacerbated, right? How do you, how do you tell Absolutely. when your pair is, be, is becoming disengaged? Well, and I have I have ADD as well, and so I I definitely I that I mean that's frankly one of the reasons I like to pair is that it helps keep me focused, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the tools that I like best for that is a practice just doing the practice of ping pong pairing, which is where I write a test, you make it pass; you write the next test, I make it pass, and so on. Mm-hmm. Ping pong um, pairing, yeah, yeah, and it just uh, it it passes control back and forth often enough, especially. Especially if I'm working with somebody who's sort of at my same level and like is a little bit devious and they're going to write code that like just makes that test pass but is obviously horrible. Like that's, that's super fun and that keeps me really engaged. But I also mm-hmm. know that control's coming back to me in 30 seconds and I'm going to have to know what they did and why it's funny and how to fix it and how to shoot the next joke back at them. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's actually a really nice hack for like being even more engaged, I think. And yeah. remote or local pair programming doesn't matter. Yeah. One of the biggest tricks I've found for managing distractions is just to remember that I can turn things off. <laughs> for example, like Twitter, Wait, you what? can actually quit that application. And yeah. Mac OS notices, you can actually click up there and shut them all the way off. <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. just things like that. And then if I do that, you know, it's, it's, I will sometimes, like you say, I'll be, I'll go to the documentation and I think I'll have a second. I should go to Twitter, but I'll, I'll start to switch between apps and it's not in the apps anymore. And that's enough of a trigger for me to be like, oh yeah, I'm not doing yep. that right now. You know? nice. I, I paired with Katrina at the Rogues Retreat and she can attest to this. Some days I have to shut Twitter off. Some days I need Twitter on as an outlet. And the workaround I've done is if I, some par- partners can't handle this, and so I don't do it. Some, I love it when they can. And when when we say something really freaking funny, I take control and I say, okay, we are now pair tweeting. And we, we go to Twitter, yeah. we write the tweet, we send it, and then we go back and we laugh at, at the joke, and then we go back to, you know, and and that way there's no secret cheating with Twitter, right? If you're going <laughs> if, if to tweet as a pair... Go pair tweet and then come back to what you're doing. You're introducing yourself to the elephant of the room and saying, this distraction, we're going to go do this together. And then we're going to go leave it together. Very nice. What about how, how, um, I listened to you talk on this episode, Sam, and you've talked about how, you know, Living Social lets you, uh, you know, host these, uh, developers and, and, uh, do all this pairing and stuff and help develop this pair setup. Uh, was that a concept they had before you came on? Is this something uh, you kind of t- 
talked him into you? How, how has all that worked with the big company and, and how has it gone over? Well, uh, to some extent, that's just purely self-defense uh, on my part, right? I, I don't work well by myself and I especially don't work well by myself in my basement. You know, when I was in school, I was doing a lot of that and my partner would get home and I'd be like, hi, how are you? And she's like, you haven't talked to anybody else all day, have you? <laughs> <laughs> the pressure valve. Yes. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, hi, I get to be social now. But yeah, they've actually been uh, really great about uh, remote work in general. Uh, they have a good tradition of hiring uh, people wherever they happen to be and when possible, hiring other people around them so they have a, a small local community. I've been trying a little bit to bring pairing into that and it's definitely there's there's some cultural issues around uh, you know having an environment where Nobody is used to pairing. It can be very hard to break that inertia. But uh, just from a, a logistical standpoint of uh, having support and getting all the tools that I need, uh, it's actually been pretty great. Um, I've been very well encouraged by my managers in taking a bit of time and you know writing LS pair and then taking a week and scheduling 15 appointments each an hour long with fellow developers to get them all set up and using this thing. So yeah, it's, it's been fun. Do you think the company's noticed any positive benefit? Yeah, I, I think so. I will let uh, other people speak to that. I know we've had Glenn Vanderberg on the show before, but maybe you can call him back and ask him. That's cool. I was wondering, so pairing is kind of intimidating in person. And it seems even more intimidating remotely. Like if I've never paired before or barely paired before, what would be a good way to approach it in a way that is not so intimidating? Well, we kind of touched on this earlier, right? This, uh, this concept that somebody is going to have their setup. And that's, that's one of the contributing factors to something being intimidating or pairing being intimidating is if I'm joining, you know, an expert on a programming language, uh, as a, as a noob and I'm joining them on their computer with their special Emacs config that's tricked out seven ways till Sunday, then I'm going to be sitting there and I'm afraid to touch anything basically. So if you can flip that around and say, no, that's fine. I'll, I'll join you. That's a nice way to, uh, have somebody feel a bit more at ease. Um, and it's easy enough to set up something like Screen Hero, where as long as you're willing to tolerate the lag I talked about, then you can join them and help them out. And I think that goes a long way, is having having somebody who's a little bit more experienced to sort of help shepherd things along. If you're both new, I have no idea. <laughs> is there a type of problem that is less intimidating to start with than others? Because some types of problems, you need so much context to understand what's going on. There's yeah. a ton of code, there are a ton of tests, the, the tests might take an hour and a half to run. Um, how do you go about easing into something and, and being able to communicate about what you're going to do when you don't even know how to pair? Email about it beforehand. Also, you know, there's this wonderful site that maybe you've heard of, it's called exorcism.io. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And Wait, what's that site? No, I'm just I love that site, but I hear the maintainer's a jerk. Yeah, they're 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 not very good at open source. Don't don't yeah. pay attention to them. Right, right, right. Yeah. right. And and let's just, just hope let's just hope they don't go into training. That's right. Oh yeah, they, no, that would be a disaster. They really need to learn how to refactor things too. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So okay. okay no, 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 tough inside jokes. Okay. <laughs> 
for, for those right, of you who it. aren't following Katrina set up and maintains exorcism.io. We'll put a link to Thanks that in the show notes because it is, it is awesome. Yeah. So, yes. But yeah. Okay. So Sam, you had a point here though. Yeah. My, my, my point was, and again, actually this comes back to what Chuck was saying about, you know, it depends. Like, what do you want to get out of this particular pairing session? And depending on what you want to get out of it, you know, you can pick a toy problem or you can say, I need help with this thing that I'm working on or, hey, I hear you're working on that and I'd like to learn a bit more about it. You know, let me let me ride along. Yeah, I th- think I, I really like what you just said there, Sam. One of the things I've seen with Avdi's pair with me hashtag movement uh, that I've th- thought is so cool is when someone wants to learn something that they don't know and they're like, you know, going to be looking at whatever for the first time or whatever. And then they say, you know, bear with me, you know, help me out. Yeah. I think that's almost the perfect on ramp because it's like, I need to know this thing that I don't know. How about somebody who knows even, even they don't have to be that much higher than you, you know, just a little bit farther down the path than you. They can help you on-ramp into that topic, and it gives you that great natural in, that reason to be talking to them, right? Right, and an external commitment to, like, get your environment set up before you get started. <laughs> right. right. I think another way to look at, at some of this is granularity. And what's the, what's the granularity of the, of the pairing? And exorcism, I think, is a fairly good model of either, like, a like low, uh, low granularity or high latency interaction where you're, you're looking at things at a fairly high level. It, you know, it's a small piece of code, relatively speaking, but you're not doing character by character or even line by line edits. You're looking at, oh, here, here's, a, here's a new version of this code. Let's get some interaction with it. it in, in a lot of ways, it's like uh, pull requests on GitHub where it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, very often a t- team's, this is this is maybe even a, a you know something uh, like a sidebar we could explore, but uh, the, you know how you balance things like okay we don't have time you know maybe we're in different time zones we can't pair together eight hours a day, um, even even pair together eight hours a day in person is exhausting. But um, there's you can do some of your work together, uh, you know pairing live and other work you can do in, either independently and then submit a pull request, and then that gives someone else a chance to take a look at your code and do the code review that doesn't happen when you're pairing. Sure. Uh, and yeah, so, so I've, I've worked on, on setups like that before. You, and you can change that, um, you know, how, how close your, your interaction is a couple times throughout the day pretty easily. You say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go for lunch. Okay, I'm going to keep working. And then when you come back, you can look at a pull request or what I did, or, you, or we can spend five minutes going over the code together. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, but I, but you know, I think that that works. Just you know, like, oh, let's go take a look at what that other pair did. Now we can, t- you know, we can take a look at their pull request and respond to it, or we can just be emailing things back and forth, talking about a piece of code, and maybe you know, maybe one person isn't working that day. So there's there's a lot of ways that you can interact remotely to accomplish programming, and they don't all look like looking at the same looking at and editing together the same piece of code at the same time. Enough rambling on that. So, <laughs> <go ahead. laughs> Sam, did you have something to interject there? No, not really. Although you, I, I will point out that you mentioned time zones in there, and that 
I mean, frankly, you could probably do a whole episode talking about time zones if you wanted to lose your iTunes family-friendly rating. Um, <laughs> but we uh, would. I would also get kicked <laughs> off the show because I have like <laughs> zero time zone skills. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, time zones are probably, or just, I guess, schedule incompatibilities are uh, probably the biggest barrier I've found and the, mo- the least tractable barrier to uh, pairing as much as I'd like to do because some of my teammates are in Texas, some of them are in D.C. Oh, yeah, I was pairing with someone in Eastern Europe last year. That was that was exciting. You know, one of the fun things that you can kind of do with these pairings, uh, Josh and Avdi did this a while back, and I just got around to watching uh, the episode recently, but they decided they were going to pair on Discourse. Uh, They set it up, did it over Google Hangouts, and then recorded it. Uh, So that was kind of neat, just in that they had their pairing session, but then at the same time, months later, I was able to sit down and watch what they did, which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, so you got to see my face half the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's kind of like the the play-by-plays on... uh... Yes, yes, right? Like seeing how developers work and think about things. I always find that very interesting, right? Like, wow, why did they do that? Or what are they thinking about now? And and being able to see that inside of uh, that inside in the pairing session and how the interaction is going and stuff. That's also interesting, I think, and maybe a trend I would love to see more of. One of my favorite parts of those are the brain farts. The places where clearly this person is not an, a, a stupid person, but they're totally missing something. Yeah, and it yeah, happens. Yeah. It happens to everyone, and it's really incur- Like it's, it's very. Re- it's a big relief to see that I it's love, not just me. I love finding places where I've missed something. I'm like, oh great, I get to learn something, and that one thing, you know, I get to carry that forward for the rest of my life and the rest of my programming career. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Katrina. I see those things happen sometimes too. The ones that I love are the ones where I am absolutely convinced that they missed something. And then later on you realize, oh, they didn't miss it. They intentionally skipped over it because they're like three levels above me and knew that 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 was a dead end. (laughs) Yep, that is so cool. You think that's air you're breathing now? (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right, well, we're we're about due to get to the picks. Are there any gaps that we need to fill before we... uh... Sam had one more thing. What is it, Sam? I did. Uh, calling back to uh, something, Katrina, that you were talking about earlier is how do you make pairing less intimidating? I was procrastinating this morning, or I thought I was procrastinating, and then I, as often happens, I ran across something that is absolutely appropriate to what we're talking about. As this little blog post, it's called The Shame of Pair Programming, and I'll throw a link in the show notes in just a second. But it's the basic idea is that pairing requires vulnerability, and you have to be humble and be ready to learn from your partner no matter where you are in the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a, nice, it's a nice little reminder that we have to like, be human and empathize with one another. It is a good blog post. I have one last question, Sam. And that's, Absolutely. And that's, you know, there are a few things that uh, very rarely get spoken of explicitly when talking about pair programming, but if you've done pair programming long then you know these things and you can like joke about them with people. And uh, at Pivotal, one of the things is, oh, you know, if you want to pair a program, you just have to get your ego in check. And yes. And, and that's something that's hard to communicate to people who are new to the experience. But then there's things like it's really important to shower and to keep breath mints around. 
when you're when you're going to be pairing with someone side by yes. side. And that's not something that I mean, you know, Kent Beck talks about that in Extreme Programming Explained. He says, you know, this is an important issue, but it, it's like it doesn't get as much coverage as some of the other issues that are more interesting and and require a lot more de- you know dealing with it. I'm curious, is there is there something like that for remote pairing that you would say if I could just tell you this and you would get it, it would avoid a whole bunch of problems for you in the future. Is there something like that you would love to have the chance to tell people? Great question. I'm not sure there's anything that I can separate from just pair programming in general. I mean, obviously, if you can't get a connection to the other person's machine, you're not going to get very far. But that gets back down into the uh, tools discussion that we avoided earlier. If I were going to try and pick something, it would be like, use a headset. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, actually, thank you. There's a whole bunch of stuff about that in the LS pair readme, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, there's actually something I found as well, which is I use a keyboard that has uh, uh, Cherry MX Blue key switches, and it, it it sounds like I'm typing on a machine gun. And you have to make sure your your pairs are okay with that amount of noise coming off of your keyboard. Uh, if they're not, you either need to get a mute switch or you need to switch to a keyboard with mushier key switches while you're pairing. Because when you type, it sounds like you're angry at the alphabet. <laughs> I can second or use that. A headset. Yeah. I can second that. Having been on that team that Dave and I talk about every so often, he convinced at least one, maybe two other guys to get the same kind of keyboard. And mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes it was impossible to pair with them and communicate at the same time because if they were typing, they couldn't talk. Yeah. Or pair over Google Hangouts, which now automatically mutes you when you type, and is so freaking annoying because you have to remember not to type and talk at the same time. Worst feature ever. Mm-hmm. Yes, agreed. So that's, there's a, a hack going around Twitter right now for disabling that on a Mac. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a setting you can do. All right, well, I'm looking at the, the readme for the LS pair, and this is actually really, really cool. So I, I'm going to recommend that people go check it out. Let's yeah, do some picks. Does that okay. mean we're picking? I think so. David, do you want to start us off with the picks? Sure. Um, at the start of the show, I didn't actually have any picks, and then we got talking in the pre-call, and I realized that I do have a couple. One, uh, I can't believe I haven't picked this before, but I wrote a blog post in 2007 called Editor Wars, Revenge of the... Oh, whatever. And it talks about Vim versus uh, Emacs versus TextMate, which were the going editors at the time. Uh, I use all three. At the time, I used to be able to say that I was better at Vim than everybody I've ever met that hated Emacs. I can't say that anymore. But the the point of the blog post, if you want to just TLDR it, is uh, life is too short to be upset with somebody else for their choice of editor. Uh, And if you're going to program, you need to be fluent in uh, all, you know, in Vim and Emacs and a GUI like like RubyMine or Sublime Text or whatever. TextMate's kind of fading a little bit. Um, the other two are just kind of silly. The first one is a mashup. There's a a user on YouTube named Flipboit for Midless. Uh, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. And this person does incredibly, incredibly amazing mashups. He does a mashup of Gangnam Style with uh, LMFAO's Sexy and I Know It. And the resulting song is incredible. I mean, it, it's in pitch, it's in meter, it's, 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 it's fantastic. Uh, and this, the third pick I have is another one by Flipboit, uh, which is 
a mashup of Katy Perry, Green Day, and Coldplay. And uh, the song that he wrote is, uh, or the, the, the mashup is called Wide Awake on Paradise Boulevard. And it's it's hauntingly beautiful. He, he just did an amazing job mashing those up. So those are those are each about five minutes of just goofy fun uh, and, and great music. And if you've seen the videos for those, uh, then watching them mashed up is, is lots of fun. That's my picks. Awesome. James, what are your picks? I have two, and the first one is for Katrina. When we were at the uh, Rogues Retreat, Katrina asked at one point what was a good book for actually getting in and and learning JavaScript. I think a lot of us just kind of gloss over that step, um, pick it up here and there, and bits and pieces. I know I definitely did. Um, So recently I got into um, actually sitting down and learning the language, really, really learning it. And um, I picked up this book called JavaScript, The Definitive Guide. And it's exactly the kind of book I love when I'm learning a language and that, like, it goes into every single, you know, conversion that JavaScript will do on primitive types and what that will become or how does variable scoping work, you know, explained in, in uh, heavy detail. So it's a O'Reilly book. It's got a rhino on the front of it. It reminds me very much of the Camel book from Pearl and just kind of this really in-depth analysis of, of the language. So if that's the kind of thing you enjoy, I, I know we talked at the retreat, some other people like JavaScript, the good parts and stuff, but if you like the really in-depth, you know, explain the whole thing, uh, this might be a good book. Uh, the other pick I have is uh, something I picked up in a novelty store in San Francisco, which is uh, kind of interesting. It's a journal, which is weird for me. I super hate journals. Uh, because I can't stand the the commitment to write in them. Like, I hate anything that obligates me to write in them all the time. Uh, but this one's kind of neat. It's a five-year journal, and it only it gives you a, the tiniest bit of space for each day, like enough for one long sentence or maybe three short ones. And I find that constraint is very intriguing for me. I, I come to it every day, and I'm like, what one thing do I want to say about today? And I have no room to elaborate or anything. And uh, so it, it's also a really low time commitment, you know, just the time it takes me to write one sentence. And I've actually been having fun doing that. So uh, if you hate journaling like I do, this might be a, an interesting hack to get around it. It's like, Those are Twitter, my for, it's like Twitter for your diary. Yeah, I like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Josh, what are your picks? Okay, I, I just got one this week. I, I think I've probably picked this before, but uh, Joe Moore, uh, someone I, I who well, like about the first person I pair programmed with at Pivotal Labs, he maintains a blog called remotepairprogramming.com because he does a lot of remote pair programming and Woo-hoo. he he has a lot of really cool information on his blog talking about it. He does reviews of tools and answers questions and posts articles about uh, all sorts of pairing practices. So it's worth checking out if you have an interest in remote pair programming. Yeah, it's a good and, one. And that's all I got this week. I'm, I'm still like deep in, um, in the, uh, the um, novel I was reading last week, the Peter F. Hamilton stories. So I won't have a new, a new read for a while. <laughs> so that's it for me. Awesome. Uh, Katrina, what are your picks? I have two picks today. The first is allthebadges.io, 
which is uh, created by a fellow named Jason Waldrop. Basically, you put in your GitHub username and it gives you all the badges for gem dependencies and um, Travis builds and uh, code climate co code coverage, or sorry, grade point average and, and then um, code coverage. And then it gives you all of the various uh, links so that you can put stick them in your readmes. And I just thought that was really cool. Uh, the second pick comes from the people I used to work with in Norway. Uh, they just released the most awesome thing ever. It's called TerraFab. And basically they took open data uh, from the Norwegian Mapping Authority and have created an online 3D map of Norway where you can drag a little square and click, yeah, I want to buy this piece of Norway, and they send you a 3D printed model of it. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So terrafab.bangler.no. I'll put the put the link in the show notes. All right. I've got a whole bunch of picks. I mean, <laughs> I've got a lot of stuff going on, and I'm, I'm just excited about some of it. Um, the first one, if you're having time zone issues, uh, everytimezone.com. I know it's been picked on this show before, but it's really awesome and a great way to go. Um, I've also had to, be, had to do some testing in Internet Explorer, and uh, so I've been using Parallels because I already had it. Um, really like parallels for running your Windows apps on your Mac. So I'm going to pick that as well. I've done a lot of uh, both presenting online and uh, pairing online, and I've done a lot of it with some of the stuff we've talked about. One thing we didn't talk about that I use for more the presenting than the, the pairing is GoToMeeting. And so I'll pick them. I've also picked on the show before Evernote. And I'm going to pick them again, but the reason is is because the mastermind group that I'm a part of, we're all doing a video on how we use Evernote. And so I am going to be putting that video together, and I thought I'd share it with you folks as well. Um, I don't have it done yet, but I'm going to be getting it done later today. So if you want to see a copy of that, um, go ahead and follow me on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is cmaxw. C-M-A-X-W, and uh, I'll try and post it right after this show goes live next week, and uh, that way you can get that and have a look at it. Finally, the last pick I have is Amy Hoy and um, and friends, Alex Hillman in particular, uh, did the Bacon Biz Conf in May, and they've started posting the videos for it on their website, so if you go to baconbiz.com, you have to give them an email in order to watch the videos, but I think they're worth it, so uh, go check that out if you're looking at building a product or going freelance or whatever. And uh, those are my picks. Sam, what are your picks? All right, I have a whole bunch of picks, and I'll try to be as quick getting through them as I can. Uh, my first pick is Ada Developer Developers Academy. Uh, this is another one of those coding schools that all the kids are starting up now. Um, but there are a couple of things I like about this one. Uh, first off, it's a one-year program. Uh, rather than the three months that a lot of them are doing. Uh, it's six months of classroom and then another six months of internship. Also, it's free. The students actually get a small stipend. Third, uh, one of the organizers is Elise Worthy, who herself, uh, she came out of Hungry Academy, and she's freaking awesome. Uh, last but not she, least... She, um, was also, she was also on the podcast Last year, oh, that's as one right. Of our that's right. I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was great. And then, last but not least, this uh, this school coding school is for women only, which I think is really interesting. Um, I'm curious to see what effect that has on the learning environment. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm encouraged by that. Um, they have an Indiegogo campaign right now, so if you want, you can donate. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But the school itself is AdaDevelopersAcademy.org. 
Uh, let's see, next pick. Related to that, uh, I've been talking to a bunch of people who are just getting started in programming, and I find I keep giving them the same, like, if I could only give one bit of advice, this would be it, uh, which is to find people near you that you can learn with and learn from. So I mean, that's my second pick. Find or make a community that you can learn with and learn from. Um, if you're lucky, that's a local community, but you know, with the pair with me hashtag, uh, hashtag uh, locality isn't quite as important as it used to be. Let's see, for my third pick, oh yeah, Portland has this wonderful population of all kinds of like hackers and geeks. And about five years ago, uh, one of them got tired of maintaining uh, this giant Excel spreadsheet to keep track of all of the different user group meetings that she wanted to go to. Uh, so in proper hacker style, she got a couple of local Rubyists together and built a site called Caligator.org. Uh, that's short for Calendar Aggregator. Uh, and this is a wiki-style calendar where anybody can post events that might be of interest to the Portland tech community. Uh, but it's not necessarily just for Portland. The source is up on GitHub, and if this sounds like something you want in your area and you don't have one, fork it and, and deploy it, because um, this is great. Uh, let's see. This next one requires a little bit of explanation. Uh, here in Portland, we have this guy by the name of Marcus Roberts, and Marcus is one of those people with like crazy beards who's been programming for decades, and he just takes this great gleeful delight in finding new and horrible ways to abuse code, and then he goes and tells you about it. And he, you know, he finds these things you should never, ever, ever use in production, and then he boils them down to just a few lines of code, and then he takes that code sample and replaces most of the characters with underscores, wraps a story around it, and brings them to the Portland Ruby Brigade every month, and we all play Hangman. I managed to get one of these on video in February, and I uploaded it to YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, so technically, my pick is this video, but I guess really it's more like the performance art of Marcus Roberts. Catch it when you can. And... Uh, as I believe you all say around here, them's my picks. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming, Sam. Cool. Thank yes, you. This was awesome. Thank you. Just want to remind everybody in two weeks, we're going to be reading Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm. And uh, if you go buy it on his website, you can get 20% off by entering Rose Club. All one word, all uppercase. Other than that, I don't think there are any other announcements. So uh, thanks for coming, guys. And we'll catch you all next week. Bye. See ya. Bye. Have fun storming the castle. Ciao.